there is a quality bias that um, that has overtaken a lot of the desires for investors. And so the reason we suspect that's happening is there's a fear that, you know, given this historical rate hiking cycle around the world, there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Pushkin. The S&P 500 just hit an all-time high, while the UK's main stock index, the FTSE 100, named after the Financial Times, most certainly did not. Today on the show, two markets, two takes. This is Unhedged, the markets and finance show from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I'm reporter Ethan Wu here in the New York studio, joined from London by, I'm not going to quite call you a UK advocate, Katie Martin. (laughs) Hey, how are you doing, Ethan? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm representing the U.S. side of the show, and you're As representing always, the U.K. side. You've got like the whole like <laughs> bandana with a flag on it and everything. Well, Katie, it's totally unmissable that the S&P 500, after what feels like years of nonstop bad news, has crawled, kicking and screaming, to an all-time high. Mm. And so we thought we'd talk about that on the show, but we wanted to, because we spent most of the last show talking about U.S. stocks, we also wanted to put up a foil, the curious case of the FTSE which we'll get to in a minute. But let's start with US stocks, Katie. It it felt like this was the least jubilant all-time high that I've ever witnessed, but maybe I haven't witnessed enough. Yeah, normally when, you know, the S&P 500, like the the big stocks index that everybody knows and loves, when that thing hits a record high, it's like, woohoo, get out the bunting, you know, slap on the kind of baseball caps and all the rest of it. And this time everyone's like, meh. Yeah, okay. It's kind of limped over the line. So uh, the index um, had a good run on Friday that took it to an all-time high at like 4,800 and a bit. Um, It's up sort of 1.7% so far this year. And yeah, where's the joy? Where's the glee? Where are the parties in the streets? And I think one of the reasons for the lack of jubilance has been the MAG-7. They were the ones kind of dragging the index over the the threshold to an all-time high. You weren't seeing this kind of broad-based mm. uh, excitement about U.S. stocks in general. And, you know, it gets to, as we talked about many times, the big valuation gap between where the, the Magnificent 7R, the very top of the market, is quite expensive and where the kind of uh, meaty middle of the market is, which is average to maybe a tiny bit expensive, but not really that expensive. And, you know, when you don't have this kind of broad based rally in equities, it gives people nerves, which is a weird thing, again, to talk about when you're when you're at an all time high. But that's sort of how it feels like to me, right? It's that people want to celebrate, but also they don't. Yeah. And so you end up with this sort of ambivalence. Yeah. So the equal weighted S&P 500. So rather than having an index that is weighted according to the market capitalization of the things inside it, which when it comes to the MAG7 big tech tech stocks, they absolutely dominate this thing. If you just give each company in the S&P 500 an equal slice, then that thing, that index is down actually about 1% so far this year. So like, meh. what in fact you've got is like Meta, Microsoft, NVIDIA really doing the hard work so far this year. Amazon's doing okay among the other sort of MAG7 stocks. Google's doing quite nicely. Apple has picked up Tesla is a whole other story, and I suspect we're going to be talking about this in a separate podcast sometime soon because um, they've got results out later this week, I believe. But there's just like three stocks that kind of matter at the moment, (laughs) and that doesn't feel very satisfying. Now, 
you know, if you take the seven, you know, yeah, we talk a lot about Mag Seven and we, we talk a lot about how top heavy the market is, but. Sometimes when you see little kind of stats around this, it's just mind-blowing. So if you put together the Magnificent Seven stocks, those ones I just named, and squish them together, that's as much as the entire market capitalization of the stock markets in Canada, the UK, and Japan put together. Oh, Like, this is bonkers. This, you know, this isn't right. <laughs> but it's not going to stop. So look, we need to just yeah. kind yeah. of psychologically get over it and start thinking... Yes, this is stupid, but stupid things last for a really long time. So let's just roll with it. Well, it's not just investors, Katie, that have been curious about the the big tech stocks. It's also uh, regulators in, in the US and, and in the EU. Antitrust scrutiny has been a big story mm. around the big technology companies for several years running. And it's something we don't talk about as much on the show. But I, I you know, we this is two markets, two takes. We promised listeners to take. I, I want to make the case that antitrust scrutiny, which is a, a big topic among investors that focus on these stocks, is actually probably a smaller problem than than, than it may appear. Mm. And is we that just why had they an interview, haven't done uh, anything yet? Like, well, I'm saying they haven't done anything. But, you know, where where's this sort of big <laughs> moment of drama where they say, right, Google, you must split into a thousand little Googles? Well, supposedly it's 2024. That is, so, so the reporting suggests. But, you know, it, you're, you're right, Katie. It's been this drumbeat in the background for these tech companies, right? Like uh, the, the Department of Justice in the U.S., the European Commission, a whole bunch of state regulators all looking into these tech stocks, bringing lawsuits. There's almost too many to keep track of. And, you know, we talked last week uh, on the Unhedged newsletter to uh, the scholar of antitrust law. His name is Herbert Hovenkamp. His take was that the merits of a lot of these cases, with a couple of exceptions, are relatively weak. And, you know, he talked about, uh, you know, the, the case against Amazon has the problem that Amazon is big and dominant and ever, everyone knows Amazon and they, they have a finger in every pot. But in any individual market, they tend to be on the weaker side. It's not, you know, uh, dominating the tire market or the, uh, you know, the, the, the spoons market. And <laughs> according to the professor, that's kind of the relevant unit of analysis when, when it comes to antitrust. Well, spoons. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's no spoon monopoly. <laughs> now, interestingly, one case that he did think had some merit is the Facebook uh, divestiture case where, where the FTC in the US is trying to get Facebook to spin off WhatsApp and Instagram, which there's some history that yeah. Facebook acquired Instagram to, to buy out a competitor. That that could really change uh, the economics of Facebook as a business. So is your hunch that this is the year that the regulators bite or based on your chat with this expert, do you th- feel like, nah, this is just going to keep simmering? I, I think what I'd say is 2024 is probably the year that some of these long pending antitrust cases start to hit, but that the actual impact to investors probably will be on the smaller side. And this is a view shared not just by the antitrust professor, but also by investors in these companies that that I've spoken with, that the ultimate impact should be small because a lot of these cases are you know, sort of legally dubious. And the ones that are stronger, like the case against uh, Meta calling for a breakup, ultimately doesn't implicate investors as much because, you know, investors would get the shares of the spun off Instagram and WhatsApp and so forth. So if I had to sum up, I'd say antitrust in 2024, it's going to hit, but it won't bite. Oh, let's see what you did there. Nice. Mm. Nice. There you go. There you go. Well, Katie, that brings us to our second market of interest today, uh, the UK's FTSE 100, which, you know, gets a little bit less attention 
<laughs> than the S&P 500, to put it lightly. But why are we interested in the FTSE? Of course we're interested in the FTSE. This is like the, the cornerstone of the city, of the, of the UK financial services industry, which is one of the most important industries in the entire country. So it's it's really crucial to the health of the city, to the health of the UK economy, that we have a kind of well-functioning ecosystem of which the equities market is is a really big part. And poor old UK equities market is not very well at the moment. So while you've got the S&P doing its thing, woohoo, Mag 7, excitement, record highs. The FTSE 100, the kind of main UK stock index, is down 3% so far this year. So it's <laughs> kind of difficult for us to kind of gather lots of attention from global investors. But there's always some brave soul out there saying, everyone hates UK stocks, and that's the reason to buy it. And there are some really kind of, you know, big, important global companies out there. You think of AstraZeneca, you think of Shell, you think of Unilever. You know, we cover a lot of ground here. We have some we have some great companies. And there are certainly fund managers out there who think that, you know, these things are just going for a song. They are just too cheap and it can't stay like this forever. And at some point, other markets around the world will catch up with, with US stocks or at least make up some of the gap. And UK companies as a rule pay out these mysterious things that US investors are not terribly familiar with called dividends. So, oh, I know. What's that? I know. Give money to shareholders. It's like magic very money from the sky. But, uh, <laughs> you know, very unfamiliar territory for, for US stock markets. But, you know, you, you get a kind of yield out of these things. So, you know, there are certainly investors who think this thing is too beaten up or it's too overlooked and it's just too widely ignored and and it's time to get in. The cautionary note is that people keep trying this over and over again and it keeps not working. But, you know, maybe this time is different. Eventually, UK stocks will indeed be a bargain. And I mean, if you just look at the headline valuation multiples, the UK is market-wide 11 times uh, next 12 months earnings mm -hmm. versus 20 times for the US. That's, that's, that's a pretty that's sizable decent. gap, which, you know, kind of ra it raises the question, Katie. Let, let's put our money where, where our mouths are. If you had to pick overvalued mag seven dominated premium valuation us stocks or beat up bargain bin low multiple unloved uk stocks what's what's the prudent buy katie i'm gonna buy the shiny things i'm gonna i'm gonna say us <laughs> but you have to promise not to tell rob armstrong otherwise he'll never let it lie you should count your lucky stars that armstrong is on vacation this week because he would be pulling out his america bugle and <laughs> and trumpeting it at maximum volume setting off fireworks in the new york studio Pull that. I think for me, Katie, I made this point on the, the last show with Rob. Uh, I, the rest of the world, I, I, you know, I just think given where valuations are, it's such a high bar for the U.S. to, to outperform. On the other hand, it's such a low bar for the, for the U.K. and a lot of other, uh, oh, I won't call them emerging markets, but oh, alternative markets. Oh, brutal. <laughs> that, you know, I, I think now might be the time to rotate a little bit, at least on the margin. You want, you want a lot of U.S. stocks for sure. I mean, the track record is so good in the long term, but... You know, just give more valuations are not a bad place to rebalance, I think. That's my two cents. Okay. Be a hero, Ethan. <laughs> the hero the UK deserves. <laughs> All right, Katie. We'll be back in a moment with Long Short. What we want to maximize is not expected return. It's not expected wealth. It's some kind of risk-adjusted wealth or risk-adjusted return. And we all know that, but we have to be really careful that we don't fall into a trap 
of maximizing expected value or expected money or expected return. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. This is Long and Short, that part of the show where we go long a thing we love, short a thing we hate, except in this edition of Long Short, we've only got one thing to talk about, and that's the original Long Short, the mullet. I'd like to read you listeners from Katie Martin's recent column in the Financial Times. She's talking about the 60-40 portfolio, which is where you put 60% of your portfolio in stocks, 40% in bonds. Here goes. Logically enough, the time-honored tradition of layering boring old bonds on top of a portfolio of stocks also felt the heat last year. This classic 60-40 portfolio, a mainstay of conservative asset management, is the mullet hairstyle of the investment world. The 40% is the short, sensible business in the front, in the form of a conservative, even dull layer of bonds with a near zero chance of default. The party at the back is the rock and roll 60% slice in equities that portfolio managers hope will dazzle the crowd. Katie, I was dazzled by this by this passage. <laughs> I feel very weird about having my words read back to me like I've been caught. <laughs> <laughs> I can only apologize to the judge and everyone else affected by my rubbish joke. I think it still stands, though. But what, kind of what was fun about 60-40 last year is that it was looking totally disastrous <laughs> right up until this sort of turnaround in the, in, in the bond market. So it's supposed to be this nice, boring, safe way of, you know, balancing out a portfolio. But um turns out everything is bonds. So it's the only thing that matters. So if, if they take a bath, then... Your your mullet hairstyle also gets washed. Something like that. <laughs> it's a, that's good. That's good. Katie, I have to ask about your trade craft. Do you just sit around thinking about analogies for the 60-40 portfolio and you're like, oh, I got it. Mullet. That's it. That's the one. <laughs> no, these... Or did you get this from somebody? These extremely poor quality jokes just come to me in a flash of inspiration. <laughs> I, I gather because so you emailed me the box. other day saying that you'd had an email from from a listener saying that they loved the rubbish jokes on our podcast. And I thought, yes, what rubbish jokes? They're all very high quality. <laughs> Listeners, if you have any more criticism, feedback, love, bad jokes of your own, let me know. Ethan.wwu at ft.com. All right, Katie, thanks for being here. We'll have you back very soon. And listeners, we're back in your feed on Thursday with another episode of Unhedged. Catch you then. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Brian Erstad. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forhez. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, Greta Cohn, and Natalie Sadler. FT Premium subscribers can get the Unhedged newsletter for free. A 30-day free trial is available to everyone else. Just go to ft.com slash unhedgedoffer. I'm Ethan Wu. Thanks for listening.